you so much for inviting me here today. What a pleasure to be here amongst such amazing, smart, talented, thoughtful young women. I mean, you ladies in this room are the future, and I'm so excited to see what is going to happen as a result of your passion, your activism, and your education. You're investing in yourselves and in your future, and that to me is so inspiring. So thank you for inspiring me here today, and um, I hope that some of my lessons and stories that I share with you about my years with President Reagan will also be inspiring to you. He truly was an inspiring individual. Now, I know on your schedule it said I was starting at two, so I, I do have a clock I will watch, um, but we are starting a little bit late, so we'll go through. I'm gonna run through some comments that I wanted to make, and then I'm happy to take some questions at the end. I probably won't get through all of them, but I'll be in the back signing books and also happy to take any questions you have later. So I think I have a PowerPoint ready to pull up. There we go, just like magic, look at that. Glad there's smart people, I don't do the tech stuff. but. Um, so, yeah, my book came out in February. It's called The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years. And what an incredible experience it has been writing a book. Has anybody in here written a book? Has anybody thought about writing a book or dreamed of writing a book? <laughs> I have to say, I never really pictured myself writing a book, um, but here it is. Um, the process of writing a book was really surreal. I found it to be very much a process of extremes. You start very much in isolation, telling your deepest thoughts and secrets to your keyboard. It seems all very personal and private. And then all of a sudden everybody says, oh, isn't it the greatest feeling in the world when you finally get that book and hold it in your hands? And no, it actually was terrifying. <laughs> because all the secrets I had told my computer were now in a book for the world to read and to see. Um, but it's been an incredible process because I guess I knew that the conservative right would really embrace the book. After all, you know, they're fond of Ronald Reagan. But I guess I underestimated how the left would also embrace the book. The book has been featured every place from People Magazine to the Huffington Post to um, Harper's Bazaar, a women's fashion magazine, uh, along with all the conservative publications. And I think there's a longing for the Reagan-esque civility, the political civility, the kindness, the gentlemanly ways um, that he represented. And the book is really not a political book. It's more of a character sketch of a great man. What was it that made Ronald Reagan so memorable? Why do your parents and grandparents, why are they so obsessed with this man? Well, hopefully if you read the book, you'll have a better understanding of who he was, what he meant to people, and how he made all of us feel about ourselves and about America. So as an executive assistant, of course, your role is to be behind the scenes. You're kind of visibly invisible, right? And supposed to just kind of stand in the background and be available. And so writing this book, my tendency at the beginning was to really, in essence, write myself out of my own story. And my publisher, when I sent some early writing samples, called me out on this and said, you cannot tell his story without telling yours. Not everybody can relate to being president of the United States, but everybody can relate to a part of your story, so tell it alongside his. And I thought how symbolic probably, especially for young women, isn't our tendency sometimes to write ourselves out of our own story. We talk about the people around us, we talk about anything and everything else, but it's sometimes difficult to talk about ourselves. 
the personal connections you make to issues, to legislation, to people out there are the ways in which others will be able to connect to those same things as well. And so I really had to put myself out there and realize that I was just an ordinary girl who had had an extraordinary life and I wanted people to be able to see him in the way that I saw him and in order to do that, I would have to tell my story alongside his. And so in the pages of this book, I hope you will relate to my story and you'll realize what it feels like to be young and green and stepping into a place that was far too big for me. And then eventually finding my footing and realizing that I could add value and that I belonged there. And then you know how the story goes. Ronald Reagan was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I was thrown into the middle of this situation and really had to dig deep and say, could I do this? Could I per persevere? Would I turn around and walk away from something that I really cherished but was incredibly difficult? Life throws us curveballs. How do we handle those? How do we hit those? And can we do so still with optimism and with a, a sense of that the future is, is still a value? So in taking you along with me, you will literally be there to see him as I saw him. You'll get to walk into the office every day with him. I had the great privilege of sitting right outside this man's office door every day for 10 years. And so the things that I saw and witnessed, I will share with you. Um, you'll feel the exhilaration of meeting world leaders from all around the globe who came to see him. You'll witness the outpouring of affection and respect every time we stepped outside the office, how people would respond to him. You'll be there for star-studded events and those quiet moments in the Reagan's home outside of the public eye. What were they really like? What was their beautiful home like? You'll be in the room when the devastating news about the president's Alzheimer's was revealed to the staff. And you'll be part of sharing that sad news with the rest of the nation and feeling the burden of unleashing something so devastating. You'll get to visit with President and Mrs. Reagan in their private home. And you'll share in the heartbreaking moment when at the president's bedside, I had to say my final goodbye to him. But in my experiences, I hope that you'll find your own and you'll discover that even pain and heartache can produce growth and greater competence in your abilities and confidence in yourself as being stronger than you ever imagined. And you'll realize that life is a beautiful circle and it can begin, it can end just as it began, hopeful and optimistic, full of faith and love and love for our great nation, even when it's not the fairy tale ending that we all want. And those are some things that you'll find in the pages of my book. So most of the questions I get usually are, how did it all start? And so I want to take you into the pages of the book um, because I, as I said, you know, it was a little bit of an intimidating process. You tell secrets to the computer and then they're out there for the world to see. So I'm going to embarrass myself, but it's in my book, so I've already gotten over a little bit of the embarrassment. But we're going to meet him together for the first time. And this was my first time I met Ronald Reagan. I was that nerdy little kid who loved politics and government and presidents. And so you can imagine meeting this man, this icon, for the very first time. I had just interviewed in the office. I was waiting in the lobby um, to leave. I was waiting for my parking validations. So I write, waiting for her in the lobby felt almost like a dream state. It was so foreign to anything I had ever done or experienced, and yet somehow felt strangely familiar, as if this was all meant to be. The door nearest me suddenly swung open, and four Secret Service agents in suits and ties with earpieces, radios, and with guns holstered under their coats walked hurriedly toward me. Did they know who I was? Did they know what I was doing here? Were they going to arrest me or shoot me? 
And then behind the lead agent, I saw two older gentlemen in golf attire. Wait, was it? Could it possibly be? It was. It was President Ronald Reagan and his golf buddy, Walter Annenberg. In all of my interview prep and planning, it had never occurred to me that I might actually meet President Reagan, and I didn't know what to do, so I thought about what I would do if the flag were passing by. So I stood up straight, placing my hand over my heart, <laughs> staring nobly off into the distance, not even looking at him, wanted to be very non-threatening. I am certain I looked completely ridiculous. <laughs> but instead of walking past me, he walked right toward me. He looked me in the eye, extended his hand, and I introduced myself to him. Well, hello, Peggy. It's nice to meet you, said the 40th President of the United States of America. I had imagined him as a 10-foot-tall giant. After all, he had been a movie star and a governor. He had tackled communism head-on, fixed the domestic economy, solved many of the world's problems. And yet here he was, an ordinary man, just over six feet tall. His hair and pictures appeared jet black, but up close I saw touches of gray, evidence of his 78 years. He was ruddy and rosy cheeked, full of life and happiness and vitality. His smile was more asymmetrical than I had noticed in photographs, yet it was perfect in its imperfect way. And those eyes, a wonderful bright true blue and carrying so much joy, he was gone as quickly as he appeared, taking all the people, the energy, and the aura of power and importance with him. The office was suddenly eerily still. Selena, the woman who had interviewed me, then walked through the same door, grinning ear to ear, having witnessed my salute. It's pretty incredible meeting him for the first time, isn't it? You should have warned me, I said, still trembling inside. No, it's much better this way. And though I felt I had horribly embarrassed myself, I had to agree. She then handed me the parking validation stickers and said, I was going to wait to call you tomorrow and leave you hanging in suspense for at least a while, but I already know that we want you to work here with us. So can you start on Monday? Yes, I could. <laughs> so I held it together until I was outside the building. I didn't know whether to shout for joy, cry, or drop to my knees in prayers of thanksgiving. I was so overwhelmed by all that had happened that I started laughing out loud. The preposterousness of it all. Me, him, this office, Fox Plaza, Avenue of the Stars. We had met, he shook my hand, and now I work for him? I didn't have any idea what Monday would hold, but I knew with confidence that my life would never be the same after that day. And in fact, it had already changed. So what was it like working with this man? When the cameras weren't rolling, when he thought nobody was watching, my job was to watch him. It was, I was his executive assistant. What was he like? I'm gonna run through some traits of leadership and as I'm talking about his traits of leadership, I want you to think of your own leadership journey and the platform that you have and that you will continue to expand as you reach forward and move forward in your own leadership. One of the things I loved about Ronald Reagan is how he led and how he lived were completely in sync. There was no difference between who he was for the cameras and who he was behind the scenes. He was warm, gracious, gentlemanly, kind, aware, appreciative, all these things all the time, even when he thought nobody was watching. We can laugh at the hairstyles and the fashions of the 80s and 90s, it's okay. My kids are horrified, I actually wore things like this to the office. <laughs> but you know, it was a little more of the style back then. But I started working for Ronald Reagan in 1989. He had just finished being president of the United States, he left the White House, he returned to Los Angeles where he was from. 
I was a student at Pepperdine University studying organizational communications. I had a minor in business. He was the perfect combination of everything I loved. He was a president, he was a man of faith, he was a great communicator. And my dad raised me to believe that somebody's gotta have the job you want and it might as well be you. So I took a chance and I wrote a letter to the office of Ronald Reagan, was brought in for an interview. As you heard, even in spite of the fact I embarrassed myself, I was hired on the spot for what I thought would be a very short-term internship. At the end of that, I was offered a full-time staff position working for the chief of staff as his executive assistant. And two years into my job, Ronald Reagan's longtime executive assistant he had had since before he was governor, retired. And they asked me to take that job. That is not something you say no to. <laughs> but at the time, I was six months pregnant with my first baby, had been married a couple of years, and had no idea how it was all going to work out. I was raised by an incredible woman, but when you picture Betty Crocker, that is my mother. The perfect, wonderful homemaker, housekeeper, um, incredible mother, completely devoted to her children. I didn't really have an example of what a working mom could be. I didn't know if I could navigate that space successfully and if I could find joy in my work and still be an excellent wife and be an excellent mother. I was fortunate over the years to uh, be married and have three of my four children while I was working for the Reagans and always was so grateful and appreciative of their support. And you can ask my kids how it worked out for them, but I'm pretty proud of my kids. I think they're amazing people um, and I think that they have benefited and learned so much by having mom out there in the world doing exactly what I was called to do. And I was called to serve this man, and I got to serve him for 10 years, up close and personal from 1989 to 1999. He left the public eye in 99. He passed away five years later, and was able to, I was able to stay connected to him and visit him up at his home up until just prior to his passing. Was able to stay connected with Mrs. Reagan and visit her up in her home just um, until last year, right before she passed away as well. So what a blessing. He changed my life forever, and it's amazing because I think his life and the legacy he is left still have the power to change lives today. Um, seeing him behind the scenes was great. There was not two Ronald Reagans. Exactly what you saw and hoped and thought that he was was exactly who he was. I don't know if you um, have ever had somebody that you really admired from a distance. And then sometimes you meet that person and oftentimes, unfortunately, are you maybe a little disappointed? He was one of those few people that regardless of the pedestal you had put him on, he was worthy of that. And when you met him in person, he was even more charming, handsome, appreciative and polite than you ever imagined. And what a great example, especially as a young person, to watch that consistency, that discipline, that awareness and engagement with other people. Looking back on my 10 years, you would think I would um, remember mostly the star-studded events, the things with the world leaders, and while those were amazing, it's funny that the things, the days that I really cherish are the days that it, we were in the office, and if you could call them ordinary days, how this very unlikely pair, I was in my 20s, he was in his 80s, and how we came together in this office setting to accomplish things and to really enjoy um, the busyness and the craziness of the schedule. And yes, I was wearing Burberry before it was even in fashion. So see, I, I was, I was all right. <laughs> Um, of course, I got to witness historic signatures. We flew private aircraft everywhere we went, so it completely ruined me to be in my 20s and ride in motorcades and you know intersection control and um, private jets. So every time I get on a commercial flight, it just 
it's just not the same. <laughs> Let's just say, it's just not the same. But I remember, treasure, and savor those days. And I knew at the time, of course, it was special. I knew I worked for an incredible man. I knew I worked for a great man. But I think history looks back, and I now realize that I worked for a giant among greats. And I'm truly grateful for that. We all wore lots of hats. It was a very small staff. He had come, come from a staff of hundreds, if not thousands, in the White House to just a handful of us that worked for him post-presidency. So we all wore lots of hats. One of my favorite roles was being his post-presidency photographer. So that's me taking his photo. I, there's actually very few photos that I'm in because I was always behind the camera lens. Um, and in fact, it's been fun because in the book I got to publish some photos that have never before really been published. Um, because post-presidency, they're not archived and cataloged the same way. You have to actually know what's there to request, and nobody knows except the people who were there. Um, so in fact, the, the cover photo I took, I snapped it in his office one day, I walked in, the lighting was just perfect, and he looked especially handsome. He always looked handsome, but there was just something, it was like that perfect studio lighting, and I walked in and was so captivated by the moment. I looked at him and I said, Mr. President, you look especially handsome today. Do you mind if I take your picture? And his classic, well, all right. <laughs> So I went and grabbed my camera, snapped this photo, never imagining 20-something years later um, it would land on the cover of a book. But I think it really captures him in those post-presidency years, the warmth and the charm and the charisma. And it looks like he's sitting at his desk right now waiting to see you as well. But behind the lens gave me a bird's eye view for everything. I got to witness their interactions with Lady Margaret Thatcher. This was before a black tie event, very fancy, very formal. But I also got to take photos like this after <laughs> the ladies in their stocking feet with shoes kicked off. I'm sure a few ladies, you know, a few in heels right now. Yeah, you, you know, we like to kick those off at the end of the day. Um, and the president has his eyes rolled in the back of his head like, come on, ladies, stop talking so we can go home. <laughs> But I love this photo so much because it shows these are real people and it also shows that they just had a wonderful relationship. And yes, Ronald Reagan was human. At the end of a black tie event, he just wanted to go home. <laughs> and I love this photo because it seems ordinary enough until you realize I snapped it just as the elevator doors opened and Margaret Thatcher stepped out. And you look at their faces and they're just delighted and you realize that this was a relationship and a friendship that meant something to them personally. They were so personally connected to her and enjoyed her as a person, not just as a political ally. Post-presidency, I got to see what diplomacy really looks like. And diplomacy sounds like this big formal kind of intimidating word. But diplomacy, Ronald Reagan's way, was really just about relationships. It was relationship-based. It wasn't based on rhetoric. It was not based on politics. It was actually very personal. And to be able to see these relationships at this highest level really changed my impression of what diplomacy is all about. And diplomacy is about person to person, sitting across the table, talking to each other, looking each other in the eye, and he truly believed there was nothing that couldn't be solved if two people sat across the table from each other and talked it out. And post-presidency, it was fascinating to me to watch all the people that came through his office. So post-presidency, nobody had to come to his office for protocol or diplomatic reasons. They came because they wanted to. They had a relationship with him in the White House that they wanted to continue post-presidency. And boy, did they come post-presidency. We had everybody from Gorbachev. And yes, he really does have a big red birthmark on his head. <laughs> uh, Prime Minister Nakasone from Japan came. Chancellor Helmut Kohl from Germany, who just recently passed away.
Prime Minister Brian Mulroney from Canada, who was a dear, dear friend of President Reagan's, President Lech Walesa from Poland. Even Mother Teresa came all the way from Calcutta to talk to President Reagan and to visit with he and Mrs. Reagan in our offices. And to just picture these people coming all from all over the world because they wanted to. It was diplomacy at, on display at its highest and best. Ronald Reagan was a man of great authenticity. So you think about him, of course, in the black tie on the world stage, but he was equally as comfortable in his boots and cowboy and his jeans um, up at the ranch as he was in black tie. And how wonderful to see this genuine authenticity to this man. He loved entertaining people up at his ranch. And I don't know if some of you have been up to the Reagan ranch before, but it's not exactly a presidential palace <laughs> like we would picture some world leaders having. It's very modest and very small, very humble, and he loved that place. His heart was there, and he loved taking people up there, regardless of how uninspiring maybe from the outside it was. But to see his delight in taking people there to a place that was so special to him was wonderful. Um, Margaret Thatcher trekked up that windy, muddy, dirty road um, all the way up there. She does not look exactly like she's ready for ranch activities. <laughs> I think that's about as casual as she gets, but President and Mrs. Reagan certainly were ready to enjoy the ranch. Um, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney came from Canada, enjoyed going all over the ranch with the president. It was fun to see the two of them interacting, um, just like fraternity brothers, telling jokes and laughing and carrying on, bouncing around the back of this beat-up, Secret Service-driven suburban all around the ranch. Um, and the bottom, I love this picture, so Mila Mulroney, um, who's the, the Prime Minister's wife, she's very beautiful, very fashionable, and I overheard her talking to Mrs. Reagan, and she said, Nancy, aren't you stylish in your boot-cut jeans? And Mrs. Reagan looked down and she said, these old things? I've been wearing these since the last time these were in fashion. <laughs> so if you keep things in your closet long enough, like my Burberry skirt, you know, they eventually <laughs> will come back around. And this is President Reagan behind the wheel of his Jeep. He was like a little kid, so excited to drive his Jeep. This was a man who hadn't driven in eight years, so he was truly like a kid behind the wheel. That's Gorbachev riding shotgun, and the interpreter and the head of President Reagan's security detail in the back who looks understandably nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I write extensively in this story, in the book, um, the story about having been given the assignment by Ronald Reagan to find a Stetson cowboy hat for him to give to Gorbachev when he came to the ranch. And this was back in the day before you could Google anything. I know I'm making myself sound ancient, like dinosaurs. Um, but you could not Google things, and so Ronald Reagan wanted me to buy a cowboy hat for him to give to Gorbachev, which sounds easy enough until you realize how exactly do you figure out what Gorbachev's hat size is? <laughs> so it turned into this global quest, and fortunately when the cameras were rolling and Gorbachev put the hat on, it fit perfectly. <laughs> there was one little caveat, though, Stetson called the next day and said, you know he put the hat on backwards. <laughs> the best laid plans. <laughs> I don't know if you know Ronald Reagan's life story, but he came from very humble beginnings. He was born basically in the middle of a snowstorm, in the middle of the Great Depression, a wide spot in the middle of the road in Tampico, Illinois, central Illinois. His father was an alcoholic. They had no money. And if you looked at the cards of life that he was dealt, you would think, this poor kid never has a chance. But he never let his circumstances define him. Instead, he chose to define them. He never saw being from small town America as something that he needed to overcome. 
He saw it as the very foundation for everything he ultimately would become. And thankfully for us, he was raised by a mother of incredible faith and optimism. And his mother raised him to believe that God has a plan for everyone. And seemingly random twists of fate are all part of his plan. And in the end, everything will work out for the best. And thankfully for us, Ronald Reagan believed that and lived a life following his mother's inspiration and the inspiration of God. He's known as the great communicator, but I would argue that he's also known as the great optimist. Most of you in this room don't remember the 1970s, but if you've read about them, you'll know that taxes were high, inflation was high, unemployment was high. I mean, they talked about malaise in America. How awful is that? Worst of all, in the 1970s, America had lost faith in itself. But Ronald Reagan took office, and on day one, he began using new language, like, it's morning in America. There's a new dawn ahead. America's best days are still ahead. There's a shining city on the hill, and we are all part of it. Day one of Ronald Reagan's presidency, in actuality, not much was different. But the perception had entirely changed, and that changed everything in America. Not because he did great things in America alone. He inspired great things to be done in America. And so as you work forward and move forward with your own leadership journey, realize that sometimes your circumstances cannot be immediately changed. But can you change the perception? Can you change the language that you're talking about when you're talking about your circumstances or your situation? Because this, the terms and the language that you use to talk about them are the same terms and language that others will use to talk about you. Can you change the perception in doing so? It's a game changer and has the potential to change everything else. He was a man of incredible humility, which sounds odd for somebody who was in such a lofty position on the world stage. But he kept this sign on his desk that said, there's no limit to what a man, we could also put in parentheses, or a woman, there's no limit to what we can do and where you can go so long as you don't mind who gets the credit. That was not just a sign on his desk. That was the way he lived his life, and that was the way he expected those of us who worked for him to live our lives as well. And it's so important to realize that it's not about the credit. Ronald Reagan never credited himself for the advances made in the 80s. He always said it was about we the people. We the people tell the government what to do, not the other way around. And he was always proud of what the people accomplished in the 1980s. He had a great sense of humor. There's all kinds of videos and jokes that he told. Um, he was the master at using humor. I'm not saying go out and buy a joke book. Uh, not everybody can be as funny as Ronald Reagan, but I think it's important to realize that it's okay to use humor. He used a lot of self-deprecating humor. He made himself the butt of the joke and was willing to do that and to put himself out there. He took his role very seriously but he was unafraid to not take himself too seriously. And there are serious issues happening, but can we maybe lighten up a little bit and sometimes not take ourselves so seriously and be willing to laugh a little, to make light of something and not take offense to every little thing, um, but use humor in a lot of ways like he did. He used it to make a very poignant point sometimes. He also used it to diffuse a tense situation, and there's so much that can be learned by living life with a gracious sense of humor. He had incredible respect for presidents that had come before him and those who came after him. He wasn't bound to the policies and the politics. Um, he didn't hate somebody just because they had an opposing title. Uh, he just was always looking for ways to bring people together. There may be a hundred things we disagree upon, 
but are there three that we agree upon? Maybe we can use that as a starting point for our relationship moving forward. He had incredible respect for women. He talks about his mother as being the most important person in his early life. He has, so much has been written about his love affair with Mrs. Reagan, which was just beautiful to witness behind the scenes. He talks about Mother Teresa as being a giant on the world stage, even though she was this little teeny tiny woman of stature. And of course, he was always most proud that he was the first president to put a woman on the Supreme Court. That was something he was very proud of and always stood by her and supported her through all those years. He was a man of incredible patriotism. He used to joke with Mrs. Reagan that there was another woman in his life, which was Lady Liberty. And I always thought that was so cute. But this was a man, you would expect presidents to be patriotic, but when nobody was watching, we would have people come to the office and sing patriotic songs or perform for him. And inevitably, I would look over and I'd see him tapping his toes in time and singing along every word to every verse, verses I didn't even know existed. And you think about how many times this man has heard these patriotic songs, and yet they still meant something to him. I would so often turn and watch him, and he would stand out of respect or put his hand over his heart or be singing, and I would literally see tears welling up in his eyes as he sang of his beloved America. He loved this country. He was a patriot from the very depths of his soul. And what an inspiration and an impact that made on me as a very young person to watch somebody who could have been completely saturated by all this and never lost his love, deep love for America. He was a man of incredible gratitude. He never took for granted the opportunity he had to serve as president. Here he is receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Bush in the White House. I snapped this photo on the way home. We were on the Forbes jet flying home from Washington, DC. It's a long flight. Of course, he had taken off his jacket, but he left his medal on. And I loved that. I thought, here's a man, he's had every trophy and award and gold sticker and certificate, and yet this really meant something to him because it was symbolic of what we as a people had accomplished, not just what he had done. So he wore it all the way home. I was wondering if he actually planned to go home and sleep in it. I mean, why not, right? <laughs> But I love this photo too, and I didn't notice this right away um, until recently when I was pulling back up these photos again for the book. And what is he doing in this photo? Can you tell? Writing thank you notes. Yeah. How many of you are addicted to thank you note writing? It's part of what you do. I'm a little compulsive. It's because of this man, and I love this photo, but it also cursed me because um, I look at this every time and I think, you know, he had somebody who would be happy to write his notes for him. I mean, that was part of what I did was his correspondence. But he took pen to paper that moment at that time. It was so important to him to say what he wanted to say to who he wanted to say it at that moment that he did it himself. And what an impact. I mean, I travel quite a bit, and this photo actually curses me because every time I jump on the plane, before I read, before I take a nap, before I do anything else, what do I do? I pull out my note cards and I write my cards because if this man can do it and have the discipline to do it, I certainly can too. If you are not a note writer, can I challenge you today to, if you want to do one thing to change the game for you, do that because I'm all about email, I'm all about social media and all of that, but the one thing that I can tell you has changed my life is writing notes. It's not old-fashioned, it's what people at the top of their game are doing still today. I cannot tell you how many dinners I have sat at where on either side was a congressman or a governor or something. By the time I could get home and send handwritten notes to both of them, I had received 
handwritten notes from both of them. This is what people at the top still do. It is not old fashioned. If you're not doing it, start doing it today and then drop me a handwritten note in a year or so and tell me how it's changed your life because give it a try. Um, it's the big distinguisher. Emails can be deleted. Lots of things can be ignored. A handwritten note is really hard to ignore. Oops. One of my most treasured possessions I have all, after all these years is this doodle. I like to think it's maybe a self-portrait of Ronald Reagan. It's a little cowboy. It says, Merry Christmas to Peggy, Nancy, and Ronald Reagan. And post-presidency, you know, the man couldn't exactly run to the, to the store and buy things. And so he gave this to me for Christmas one year and said, you know, I'm sorry you couldn't do more, but you know you do all my shopping. So <laughs> uh, he made this for me. But there's nothing I treasure more because it was from his heart, from his pen, and it was just so special to me. The world knew him for so many things. I knew him as a man of extreme kindness. This looks like a prom picture, but he was there when, we, when I told him I was engaged to my husband, Greg. We have our 28th anniversary coming up soon. He, um, as I said, I got married and had three of my four kids while I was working for him. He welcomed my first, which is my son, Taylor, my second, my daughter, Courtney, my third, my daughter, Paige, my fourth, my daughter, Jocelyn, at which point Mrs. Reagan pulled me into the outer hallway and she leaned in and she said, Peggy, you know how this is happening, right? <laughs> Not exactly a conversation I want to have with the former first lady or anybody, but yes, four and no more. <laughs> so raising my kids alongside this iconic man was something incredible. Um, celebrating birthdays and Halloween and Christmas and swimming in his pool and walking through the Los Angeles Zoo, turning my head and seeing Ronald Reagan pushing my son's stroller flanked by United States Secret Service is almost <laughs> surreal in my mind. Um, but kids are great. They don't understand titles. They don't understand importance. But they loved this man because they knew that he loved them. And I always appreciated the warm welcome that he and Mrs. Reagan always gave my children. My husband got to play golf with the president, which was great, so I'd say, okay, so let me get this straight. I work hard all week, and you play golf with the president on the weekends? And he said, yes, I must duty calls, I must serve my country. <laughs> so I hired a handyman and a gardener, and we've stayed happily married for years. <laughs> So really, in a lot of ways, I grew up next to Ronald Reagan. Everything I ever need to know about how to lead and how to live, I learned at the feet of this man, not from a list, but just by the way he lived his life. And the thing I guess I take away from those years is that your legacy is not something that's written after you're gone. It's something that is written with every single day of your life. And so we all should lead and live as if our legacy depends on it, because it does. Ronald Reagan's legacy was on display behind the scenes every day when nobody was watching and every day when we stepped out into the world, I got to see his legacy being created with every single day of his life. When he passed away, his legacy was on display because we saw the outpouring of affection from across the nation and around the world for a man that most people had never even met and yet they felt drawn to him, they felt connected to him because he had always felt connected to them as well. There's so much we miss about Ronald Reagan today. You know, it's the kindness, it's the civility, and I think most of all we miss how we felt as Americans when we were 
strong economically, when we were bold diplomatically, when we were shining the torch of freedom all around the world. I think a lot of ways, a lot of reasons we miss Ronald Reagan is because we loved ourselves and we loved America when he was president. And I believe we don't want to get over Ronald Reagan. We really want to get back to what he what he embodied as a president and as a leader for our nation. So I'm going to take a couple of quick questions and then I'll end with one short passage. So yeah. Yeah, what would you say about the current president? Um, you know, he always believed that we the people tell the government what to do. I think he would be proud to know that democracy worked, um, that in spite of the overwhelming odds against our current president being elected, um, that we the people had a voice and people in states and places that are not recognized by a lot of those in power today really were empowered with their vote. And I think he would be pleased that the people's voice was truly heard. Um, you know, things were very different, but I also believe that the pendulum swings often. And so I would like to believe that in a lot of ways, the pendulum is going to swing back to a, a greater political civility. Um, and, and that's not just from the president, that's from society as a whole. We look at the things we value. We value the sensational. We value sound bites. We don't value substance. We value reality TV. We don't value real things. And so our leaders that we have so often are a byproduct of who we are. And so if we don't like some of our leaders, um, maybe we need to look at culturally where we are and where we're headed and invest in people invest in our education, invest in our young people, and make them be informed and people of substance that will make good choices. And yeah, so does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Uh -huh. Uh, when it comes to the First Lady and uh, Nancy Reagan, how would yeah. you say her role was when it came to supporting the President? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of people saw that their role as very traditional. She very much preferred to be behind the scenes. Um, but she was a force to be reckoned with. She was a very strong woman. She, I had such an appreciation for her because she was unafraid to be the bad guy so that President Reagan could be the good guy. And I appreciated that about her. And in his final years, especially when he left the public eye, I really admired the fact that she stepped up into the spotlight a little bit more and became an advocate for his life and for his legacy. That wasn't a place that she preferred. She was happier being behind the scenes, behind him, but she loved him so much and wanted to be a champion for his legacy that she was willing to do that. Um, I had a great relationship with her. I actually write a whole chapter called Mrs. Reagan's Ally. There's a funny story in there about us kind of conspiring behind the president's back <laughs> about something. Um, but she appreciated truth and loyalty. And so if you always told her the truth and if she knew that you were loyal, you would never have a problem with her. So here I was a very young woman. I worked for her husband for 10 years and we had a great relationship. She knew I had his back and I was ferociously loyal and defending him and her. Um, and then I would always be straight with her. And she appreciated that. And sometimes that's tough to do. It, it's, it's tough to tell people the truth. <laughs> But if you learn to do that, um, it, it will get you far. Yeah. Are you, can you tell us just a little bit about how, what you saw with President Reagan when it had to do with dealing with the Democrats? Because we always hear, oh, he was just so bipartisan. He had a good relationship with Chip O'Neill. We know that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
Can you tell us a little bit of how he handled that privately, any conversations you overheard? Yeah. Well, he was very big about looking at the person. So Tip O'Neill is a perfect example. Were they in lockstep on anything politically? No. Did they go toe-to-toe -to -toe and disagree completely about everything politically? But that didn't make him hate him as a person. And so their rule kind of was after, after 6 o'clock at night, we could get together, we could tell jokes, and we could just be people having a relationship that wasn't political. And so he didn't let somebody's title or their politics pollute them as a person. Um, and, I, and I think that was shown in the way that people responded to Ronald Reagan as well. There were tons of people who didn't like Ronald Reagan's policies, but when you met him personally, you had to like him personally, even if you disagreed with him. And so that was the way he extended a loyalty, a kindness, a friendship to people, um, and, and did that first. He didn't demand your loyalty or your friendship first before he would be kind to you or good to you. Um, he gave you that the benefit of the doubt as a person and realized that we could disagree politically without being hateful and spiteful personally. And let me end with one quick passage um, because I think that a lot of you, as you go through kind of these next steps and chapters of your life, you know, life has so many chapters. And I hope you'll look back on this particular chapter with fondness and with excitement about the next chapter. You never know what is right around the corner. And if there's a question you wanted to ask, I'll meet you in the back later. But I wanted to end, um, you know, I started with how, how I started with the president. And so I wanted to end with a passage about leaving the office at the end of those 10 years. So it seemed surreal to be leaving the office for good. And yet looking back on the past 10 years, it all had been surreal. So maybe this was just the ending of a very vivid, realistic, and extended dream. I thought back to my first glimpse of the president as a Pepperdine student and how exhilarating that was. Never could I have imagined how every detail of that man's face and hands, his voice and his mannerisms would forever be ingrained in my mind and now in my memory. I recalled the emotions of excitement when I was invited for my interview and drove up Avenue of the Stars for the very first time, riding the elevator that rocketed to the penthouse. I thought of my surprise at how comfortable the office was from the outset and how uncomfortable, yet special, my first meeting of the president was. It seemed like yesterday when I answered the phone for the first time, Office of Ronald Reagan. And now, 10 years later, I had to consciously override that habit and remember to answer my own home phone with a simple hello. I pictured how carefree and simple my life was back then, going to the gym, dressing for work, commuting, traveling, socializing, and pouring my whole self into my career. By contrast now, I sometimes felt like I was barely staying afloat, let alone swimming through life with the relative ease and grace of a few years ago. I was 31 years old and I felt like I had lived 10 lives in the last 10 years. I had seen more, done more, met more people, and experienced more of life than most people would in a hundred years. I had gone from feeling young and green and out of place to feeling comfortable, accomplished, and confident in my work. I had known what it felt like to be in a place in my life where the pace and the people and the productivity thrilled me, brought out the best in me, and allowed me to offer my best to my boss and to my workplace. I knew what it felt like to be jolted out of bed in the middle of the night by the 1994 Northridge earthquake, unsure if the house around me would stand, and similarly jolted out of my comfort zone with the realities of cancer and Alzheimer's invading my life and trying to steal the joy from some of my greatest, most memorable, and celebrated years of youth. 
Yet the experiences of all that had all, all taught me that life doesn't happen by accident. You need to prepare and plan and dream and be ready to grab an opportunity when it comes your way, regardless of how inadequate you may feel for the task at hand. Keep trying, keep growing, keep absorbing the best in your surroundings, and eventually you too can become accomplished and become a valued contributor in an environment that previously felt foreign. I, all, I learned we all have a greater capacity to work and multitask and achieve and celebrate and even mourn simultaneously. And we can do so with a genuine sense of joy and purpose and contentment, even in the midst of sorrow, sometimes, especially then. I learned that life truly is a circle, and just as I was welcoming new life, I was also reluctantly letting go of a life that had meant so much to me and had taught me so much. I realized that gifts we are given that seem to be unearned and undeserved are sometimes recalled later in life with the demand that they be returned in the form of blessing on others, service to others, and loving others even when their capacity to reciprocate is gone. I learned that nothing is forever and had to accept that this amazing chapter of my life was now ending. I mourned its loss, yet was filled with gratitude that it had ever happened at all. Thank you so much for having me here today.